0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy, and this week we're asking a transatlantic domestic goddess how we can all become better cooks. Listeners in America may be sitting around the table this week celebrating Thanksgiving and being thankful that a COVID vaccine is happily on the horizon. Restrictions this year mean many people have spent more time in their homes and a lot more time thinking about what they cook there and how they do it. We reported in The Economist that global online searches for yeast went up 300% between March and April at the beginning of lockdowns as more people tried making their own bread. We said with variable results. Nigella Lawson is champion of home cooking and a reliable port in a storm for cooks new and long in the tooth. She's published 11 best-selling cookery books, including the classics How to Eat and How to Be a Domestic Goddess. She's also a well-known TV cook and her current BBC show is Cook, Eat, Repeat. The Economist has called her a domestic divinity with her technically uncomplicated dishes and unashamed focus on the pleasure of preparing and eating. There is more to
1: overripe bananas than banana bread and these specimens are destined for my chocolate tahini pudding cake to be eaten warm and squidgy and dollops with cream.
0: Well, it's turkey time this week for Thanksgiving and it's always brined if you follow Nigella's recipe and personally, I wouldn't dare not. But we all know it's the side dishes and the desserts we need to keep room for. I'm thinking
1: of a pie for, for Thanksgiving. It's very hard to beat a good apple pie, I have to say. Very hard. I like to have a bit of... Cheddar or sharper hard cheese in the crust, if I can. There's a very old saying, an apple pie without cheese is like a kiss without a squeeze.
0: And if you're not able to spend time with family and friends over the holidays, or indeed get a kiss or a squeeze, we'll also be discussing the joys of cooking for one. And what would she make for the incoming president, Joe Biden, and perhaps for the outgoer? Nigella Lawson, welcome to The Economist Asks. Thank you very much. Love you to be here. Your new book, Cook, Eat, Repeat, is half recipes, half stories. You call it a culinary stream of consciousness. Sort of reminds me of Virginia Woolf. (laughs) Uh, have Have you moved away from the traditional recipe book towards a more literary genre?
1: Well, I don't think I would say I've moved away. I mean, it was very much more the style of my first book, how to eat which i published in 98 and i wrote it there not knowing even it was going to have recipes but then it it did begin having some some in narrative form and some as recipes and in a way i think there have been a few of my books which have really fitted in to that style with essays of some sort but this one certainly more started off feeling that I wanted to write about food and what eating means and, in a way, to to look at certain aspects of food and cooking in a way that I, I wasn't enormously worried about whether it would be a traditional cookbook or not. In fact, I knew it wouldn't be. But I would say that's more my fallback than a diversion.
0: And you say in the book, the recipes I write come from my life, my home. What are the significant recipes and what moments do they reflect for you? It's really not so much just the recipes,
1: although I will come to some that do mean A lot.
0: But it's also about,
1: I suppose, the sense I have of trying to write about cooking as a home cook. When I talk about coming from a home, it's very much the style of cooking. I suppose relying on certain, I can't say techniques, I have no technique, but certain ways of cooking or certain ways of looking at ingredients. In here, there's a particular recipe for, I call it chicken in a pot. With lemon and orzo which is which is something my mother had a used to cook chicken a lot like this which is really just chicken in in a pan on the stove with leeks and carrots and quite a bit of lemon juice now I wrote about that in an earlier book and this is really just a development of this recipe and it's for me, such a symbol of home cooking, for one, it centers around a chicken, which a lot of my cooking does, and which I think is in a way the, I mean, obviously not if you're vegetarian, but the elemental unit of home cooking, that food is there to nourish and to comfort and to mark occasions in life and to sort of set down memories or to evoke previous ones. And, and this recipe does both.
0: And does it also, in particular the time that we're speaking, sort of demarcate life and, and times in life? I saw you wrote a piece earlier in the year in a newspaper about turning 60 when you said you'd learnt to relish solitude. And I know, just as well. Good timing, huh? <laughs> you beat me to it. I was about to say, <laughs> I, I think you were prescient there in terms of a virtue. I mean, yeah, well, I feel
1: unfortunately, you know, the title Cook Eat... Repeat, which predates the pandemic, was also very much um, leaping ahead without meaning to, to describe how we were all living our lives a bit during the first long lockdown.
0: And as we're now in the second, has it changed the way that you're cooking and eating, let alone repeating?
1: You know, the thing is, and what I suppose the lockdown showed me and carried on showing me is... How much I love cooking for myself, which sounds perhaps like a selfish thing, but I've never gone for so long in my life without feeding others. And so for me, food took on a particular meaning, both, for example, when not being able to be with my children, and making myself in eating food that reminded me of being with them. There's a wide noodles with aromatic broth and lamb shank, in this book,
0: and you would cook that for one. You're emboldening a lot of us who, when the household empties out, well, I would. I mean, to be
1: honest, it serves two, and you can freeze half or just be greedy. I've always been a believer in, in cooking for one. I think it's I like food too much, to be honest, to want to save up my best eating experiences only when I have company. And I also find it such a a wonderful way of cooking without stress because there's no anxiety about whether uh, it's going to find favour or not. If you want to gain confidence, cook for yourself. And I think you can then, you're not worried about what everyone's going to think. You can actually focus on the process a little more. And I think that teaches you how to cook.
0: If I remember rightly, and I think we, we want to discuss this many years ago, you don't have a glass of wine when you cook no. which struck some of us as taking self denial too far. Is that still Oh it's not self denial? <laughs> it's not self
1: denial. I feel that one is generally in life either an eater or a drinker, and I am more of an eater. You know, because I've been by myself, I don't want to open a bottle of wine. I don't want to have a whole bottle a night. And the one time in lockdown, the last lockdown, I did open a bottle of wine. I then forgot about it and it went vinegary. So that isn't very good. I do occasionally have a drink when I cook. But on the whole, I find it so calming. I think back to the days when I had people for dinner. uh, Because I don't drink... wine regularly, were I to have a glass of wine while I cooked, so I think my schedule and timing <laughs> in general would go off terribly. I think
0: that probably explains a lot of our cooking schedules. <laughs> but if we look at, at cooking as a sense of comfort, much more broadly and much more profoundly, I get the feeling it has helped you, it has sustained you through the most serious things that that life can throw at you. And you've seen many of the people you, you love die young, your mother, your sister, your, your first husband... Uh, it can sound pat, but people get a lot of comfort from the idea of doing things that they did with someone or for someone when they were alive.
1: Well, yes, although it can take a while to feel that. It can be at first, you know, terribly difficult because it's painful, because the key person is missing. I sometimes think How to Eat was written in a way so that I could memorialise the food that I'd cooked and eaten with my mother and sister, and I don't think I could have written it immediately after their deaths. Do I think cooking is therapeutic? Not necessarily. I think certain types of cooking can be. I think kneading bread can be. In the absolute onslaught of any grief, one's focus is not very good. When you cook, you have to let your intelligence somehow leave your mind and exist in your fingertips or your sense of smell and sound. And because you're then somehow immersed in this world of the senses, it can help the brain from, you know, to quieten down a bit or at least to be a bit empty. But I think it's really about... Focusing on something which is essentially un- undemanding, but needs constant attention at the same time. And I find that is helpful.
0: You also talk about food in some ways as an antidote to worry or guilt. And you, you wrote about your love of food coming from your mother, who first taught you to cook. But she did deny herself any indulgence, and you say that when she was diagnosed with her terminal cancer two weeks before her death, very shockingly, she started eating for the first time without worry or guilt. So, what did you take away from that in terms of developing a healthier relationship to, to what you would eat and what you would cook? Well, I dare say a lot.
1: The fact that I turned into a food writer, which I hadn't thought, owes a great deal to that a sort of insistence on enjoying food and really came out of a need to shed that what could have been an inheritance, a very unhappy inheritance. It's often passed down from mothers to daughters, an unhealthy obsession with weight. If you close off food as an avenue of pleasure, the days are really both a strain and and a trial i think and a trial and i and it's impossible to live like that it's or to live like that happily there is something about cooking and eating which puts you so firmly in the present and i think that's a very important a very important quality it has or the ability it has to make one somehow push out the margins of your mind the fretting about the past the worrying about the future it's it's pretty much all consuming
0: so to speak and and you've talked uh, about your family background uh, quite a lot but also about meal times being not entirely enjoyable for you as you you grew up you you grew up in a family with a very successful uh, father who was a politician he was a uh, chancellor well he was a
1: journalist actually for most of my childhood he was so that's, that's true he was
0: a successful journalist yeah. and, and then later um, high yeah, profile later on in my life politician uh, and also you have a, a brother who is very well known in in journalism you have a quite intellectually competitive Background: Did you experience sibling rivalry at the dinner table?
1: I don't think I would describe it as sibling rivalry, but I certainly think it was probably... Well, families are difficult, aren't they? And I was at that stage very much, and probably still am, the quietest of all the children.
0: That might, might seem strange for someone who's known on both sides of the Atlantic by their first name because they have such a high television and public profile. It's
1: an odd thing, but it's true. And I think that it's easy, it's easy to feel swamped in a family. Oh, but I'm very close to my siblings, so I don't know. But it's certainly that you, that I didn't enjoy meals. I didn't even eat much as a child, actually. And I'm sure the fact that I cook a lot comes out of that because I think maybe it's a control issue because if you cook yourself, you are in control. When you're a child, Adults are in control and they're telling you what to eat and when you're going to eat it. And I really didn't like that. I don't think I got interested in food until I became much more in charge of my own meals.
0: And you started out as a a restaurant critic in in the mid-'80s. Well,
1: I didn't really start out as a restaurant critic. That started a bit later. I started out working on the arts pages... of of then the Sunday Times and then the books pages. But I don't feel that writing about food is essentially enormously different because I think you can write about the whole of life through food.
0: But it's interesting when you started, I should say, when you started writing restaurant criticism and then books, I mean, you understood the books well because you'd come from a background, as as you reflect, of literary journalism. You, You probably had perhaps more idea than some of of what you wanted to present uh, about food. And it's interesting when you... I don't know that I did, actually. I don't know that I did. It, well, it's a happy accident. Well,
1: I, I think... I mean, it surprised me that I was doing it and I felt at the time almost embarrassed about it, I have to say, that it was perhaps not intellectually respectable to be writing about food. And I think the world has changed a bit. I now feel ashamed of the shame I felt, if you know what I mean.
0: Well, in fact, that was where I was really trying to sort of head, Nigel. I was thinking really that the idea of how much has changed about the way that we look at food writing in three, three and a half decades, the idea also your public incarnation, how to be a domestic goddess... It's, it's such a great
1: title, but it, it, was,
0: it was. It was meant ironically, um, I have
1: to say, something I've <laughs> always sounds odd. It was, it, it was meant slightly ironically, the book of, the book of that title had uh, the sort of cartoonish 50s pictures of sort of people holding apple pies and doing high kicks. It was not meant as a sort of back-to-the-kitchen manifesto, by any means.
0: No, but it was from an era of quite a sort of vavavrum, you can have it all or you can aspire to have it all. Do you think anything has changed in the way that we look at the role of women and food writing or cooking?
1: Yes, I, did. I don't think I thought of it in that way. I think what I felt at the time is that many of my contemporaries, many women of my contemporaries, had mothers who had felt with a lot of justification, very worn down by a life of domestic drudgery, as they saw it, and inculcated in their daughters not to get shackled to the stove. I didn't see cooking like that, but it just was something I'd always done. Whether you're a man or a woman, the notion that you could be frightened in your own kitchen and not really occupy the domestic sphere, but just see your home as somewhere that you went to in between going to work, seemed to me not a healthy thing. Now, of course, this was a long time before people wrote about the work-life balance.
0: But that was a sort of... There was a sense of things being peripheral that have become much more centre stage. You've played a big... I think that's
1: true. I don't know that I played a big part, but I think it has... it, It certainly was... Thought of as, uh, why doesn't that go on the woman's page? Although it seems to me, you know, food sustains life. And the idea it's somehow peripheral to life is is an extraordinary attitude. That's really what I
0: sort of took away from that is I think things that were seen often as peripheral have moved centre stage. And perhaps. Not more so than during the, the lockdown with people at home taking more comfort in mm. cooking. So what, what are you cooking in, in, in lockdown? We haven't actually spoken specifically about uh, some of your delicious meals. and I've got the, the book in, in front of me. What is sustaining you in the lockdown? I'm trying to think. I, do, I cook so differently. I shop
1: differently. Actually, and so I quite like not knowing what I'm going to get, which sounds odd. So if I want something from the fishmonger, I sometimes say, oh, you choose. I want two suppers. And then I have to go with what's there. I quite like that flying blind way of cooking, uh, but which you can't really have (laughs) if you're cooking for other people with their tastes and not. But I certainly do work up to... I'm, I made a huge vat of a recipe that's in the book called uh, anchovy elixir. I call it anchovy elixir, a slightly camp title, but um, which is somewhere between a dip and a sauce made with salted anchovies rather than ones in cans, in oil, um, lemon and garlic and olive oil. And I, I made some of that, and at lunch I had that over a bit of sea bass and some roast red chicory which is looking very much you know past its best in my fridge i suppose otherwise i find especially now it gets colder i'm eating quite a bit out of bowls and things that don't need to be chewed a great deal they're um elasticated waistband rather than jeans
0: god what what a relief and do <laughs> you think you're a bit cooking obviously has traditions, very strong traditions on either side of the Atlantic. You're now known both. You, you cross the pond. How much do you think about different traditions and where do the two traditions merge for you?
1: Well, I've always really seen a great deal of lyricism in the American baking tradition.
0: I think that
1: Americans are very, in my experience and in shops, are slightly more seasonally led. I think we get in our supermarkets much more out-of-season produce than you would find in an American food store. But the real truth is, when you're away from home, you eat in restaurants. So my... I don't know enough, and I long to go to people's homes more, but I don't know enough about the, you know, sort of cooking in homes. But I also think that cities have more in common with other cities than they do with the rural parts of, within the same country. So I would say that the food in London and the food in New York have a great deal more in common than each city does with a lot of the perhaps the, some, you know, areas in the countryside.
0: And those famous Midwest portions that always... Uh... Amaze the the newcomer.
1: Um, yes, they are. But, but it makes sense in America. I, when I was did a driving tour of America years and years ago and I, th- I hadn't ever thought it could be possible that I could be served portions too big for me. Um, and then I thought, well, of course, if you have a country that's made up of people, a large number of people who've gone there to escape poverty in the country they were born in, it makes sense that Having more than you can eat has
0: this an extraordinary potency. You mentioned eating out in restaurants and eating out for whether it's a pub lunch or a fancy restaurant dinner to celebrate something has had to kind of go by the board, and and especially so here in Britain, where we're in the second national lockdown as i talk to you and shops and restaurants were forced to close uh, on the 5th of november other than essential shops of course for for groceries there's a i think there's quite a lot of frustration even some anger in the restaurant industry about that and feeling that restaurants won't survive a second lockdown in a substantial number of, of cases do you think it would have been better to keep restaurants open
1: well i don 't i, I that 's something I really don 't know I mean I think that in summer certainly there 's an argument for it. It seems to me that being indoors is problematic in order to answer that question, I would actually have to look at proper scientific evidence to say whether it was it was a relatively safe thing to do or not. I don't think, I, I think in terms of restaurants, I'm heartbroken that they're suffering such a lot. And I think it is terrible. And I think that perhaps they, sh- they should be supported more. As a Londoner, I do not see how you can pay London, or any anyway, you know, rents while not earning money. And I, even when they were allowed to be open, keeping a restaurant going without tourists... In central London, I don't think that's manageable either. But I, I think really that landlords have to be part of it.
0: And of course, I mean, I was about to say we've done a lot of reporting about this in the US. The problems are for all the differences in handling of COVID. The problems for the restaurant sector are pretty similar. I would suggest, as you also made the comparison between cities,
1: but they are, and, and it's 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 not surprising. But I do I do think that there has to be some way of. Talking to landlords as well, because in the end they if they run, if they insist on full rent all the time in the end in the end they are going to be earning nothing as well
0: so there's a, a plea for landlord clemency there
1: well, I think so i think otherwise i think it becomes extortion actually if you insist on a, the rent full rent when you know someone can't really pay it. it it's and and it's it's bound to be counterproductive
0: and there's no culture in which it doesn't matter is there that just says you know what we don't really care what we eat and as we're coming into the holiday season and we have uh, thanksgiving for our american audience and some of us who borrow it and and kind of generally murder the recipes now you brine the old turkey i, I know this because i religiously followed the instructions Thanksgiving is going to be a brined turkey this year?
1: Definitely. Well, I, well, it really depends, because, of course, you know, if I am actually all by myself, I don't think I'm going to brine a turkey. <laughs> but one of the things I think that both Thanksgiving and Christmas have in common, because our, the meals, and you know, have an overlap, is that it's the sides that are so wonderful. Certainly a pie. I'm thinking of a pie for for Thanksgiving. But... I would like to think I could have people on my table.
0: Have you thought about the inside of the pie or just just the pie?
1: No, a pie at any could have anything in it.
0: But I do you know,
1: I am thinking about the insides and I do think that it's very hard to beat a good apple pie, I have to say. Very hard. I like to have a bit of cheddar or sharper hard cheese in the crust if I can.
0: Ah. Gosh, that's radical! In the crust, I thought you were going to say on the side. Yes, in the crust. No, no, in the crust. I heard it here it's here first. It's, it's, no, Cheddar, no, no, in no, the crust. It's, it's an innovation. There's a very old
1: saying: an apple pie without cheese is like a kiss without a squeeze. Do you know? it's a, actually, it is an old expression.
0: <laughs> I think I'm a bit behind the curve on that one. I'm sure our listeners are going to tell me that everybody knows that except me. <laughs> <laughs> and what about Christmas? Your new ideas for Christmas in your recipes. Christmas bread and butter pudding, New Year donuts. Is it hard to come up with new Christmas food without tormenting the genre? Yeah, but it hasn't, there hasn't been that new. so
1: I've done a sort of Christmas Eve supper, which is fairly Nordic, at least in, um, in its original inspiration, um, a Swedish... Potato gratin. We call it chip gratin at home, which is Jonson's Trestelsa, or Jonson's temptation, which is a wonderful potato gratin that you know that would be in the Christmas Eve supper of every Swede. So that I enjoy. But the, the donuts are really, in fact, a Dutch tradition. They're called olibollen. and That's how...
0: I think you just like the names. I, I think you've just gone for things you like the sound of.
1: With olibollen and also apple flappen, which I adore, which are really very lightly yeasted. I do just like the name... They do, no, but they are delicious. But apple flappen are actually more like fritters, but with a very light yeasted batter, a bit like tempura. Well, at least mine, that's what mine are. And I felt that who knows whether we'll all be going out to, to celebrate on New Year's Eve. I doubt it. So why not make donuts at home? Seems to me an ideal way of dealing with new circumstances.
0: I remember you uh, supervising a menu in preparations. This is a bit different from uh, from. Sitting in our kitchens at Christmas, New Year, or Thanksgiving, but you, you've also you have cooked some, some pretty big lunches and dinners in your time. And I, I think you supervised a menu for a lunch hosted by Tony Blair in Downing Street. And I didn't cook it. You I said to him, the menu.
1: I supervised the menu. I said, I, You look, I really, apart from anything, I really I am not, I'm not qualified to cook formal lunch I supervised it but of course everyone had various eating requirements you have no idea how many I, I was, you know that this person wanted this I this should person, just finish it, it, it was
0: a lunch wasn't it for, for George, it George Bush George and Laura Bush at Downing Street during in a state visit if I remember correctly
1: yes that's right and I it was an odd thing to, to do but Tony Blair asked me and I uh, and was very persuasive so I did it <laughs>
0: And you probably might be able to guess where I'm going with this one. I mean, what would you prepare now for an incoming Joe Biden?
1: I read a rather wonderful interview with uh, Jill Biden saying he's a very basic eater and he likes red sauce and pasta and she likes a bit of fish. What would I supervise if I doing that? That is a very difficult thing. I don't suppose he's enormously interested in food, but I, I think maybe... I, I would quite like to do a lasagna because I don't know there's anyone who dislikes lasagna, really.
0: What, what about the Trumps? Would you cook a outgoing dinner, if we get that far, in the near future for Donald and Melania Trump? Only if they're well and truly out. <laughs> so you, you want to know they're out the door? I want to and know then, they're out the door. And then it would be... Mm-hmm. But then I, If
1: that would then... No, I, I wouldn't actually want to, but I don't believe that would not give me an enormous amount of pleasure... I don't believe he eats anyway, so I think the temptation would be too great if I, had, if I was let alone in the kitchen feeding him.
0: Nigella Lawson, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thank you. Most of us won't be cooking for presidents, whatever our political taste, but have you found a new joy in the kitchen this year, perhaps inspired by one of Nigella's recipes? Or did you relate to the way that preparing food helped her deal with grief? But the big question, do you allow yourself a drink while you cook this holiday season? You betcha. Or maybe it messes too much with your timings. We'd love to know what you think. Write to us, radio at economist.com, or you can tweet us at Economist Radio. And for the best introductory offer to all of our journalistic tasty morsels, please go to economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. I'm Anne McElvoy, and in London, this is The Economist.